0: Hello once again, listeners, and welcome to the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. I'm Hugh Thomas, the deputy editor. In this episode, we're discussing a randomized double-blind non-inferiority trial of glutide versus colisevolam for the treatment of bile acid diarrhea. Now, this paper appears in our recent October issue, and I'm delighted to have corresponding author Philip Knop joining me today to discuss the paper. He is Professor of Endocrinology and Director of the Center for Clinical Metabolic Research at Gentoft Hospital, uh, University of Copenhagen, and Consultant Endocrinologist at Steno Diabetes Center at Copenhagen.
1: Professor Knopp, thank
0: you very much for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So,
0: bile acid diarrhoea, or BAD, is, is quite a major burden for quite a lot of people with symptoms that can have a tremendous impact on day-to-day life, uh, including high stool frequency, defecation urgency and and fecal incontinence. What do we know about the prevalence of BAD and and what's the current understanding around what causes it?
1: Uh, Two very relevant uh, questions. First of all, the prevalence of uh, BAD is is quite difficult to establish because uh, the condition is diagnosed in different ways across different countries. For instance, in most uh, European countries, BAD is diagnosed by the so-called CCAT, which stands for uh, selenium homo-tero-colic acid test. And in this test, the seven-day retention of an oily administered selenium-labeled bile acid is measured with a gamma uh, camera. And then the condition is diagnosed based on the retention rate of this labeled uh, bile uh, acid. So this SIGCAP test is considered the reference standard for diagnosing BAD, but for instance in the US, the test is not available due to the small radiation associated with the test and American and Canadian doctors, they typically diagnose BAD based on empirical effect of bile acid sequestration and otherwise unexplained chronic uh, diarrhea. So. This, these uh, uncertainties with regard to the diagnostic test of BAD combined with the general lack of knowledge about BAD makes prevalence estimates quite uncertain. But there is nevertheless a, a very important study published back in 2009 by Wedlake and colleagues where they made a systematic review on the prevalence, prevalence of BAD in patients suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, in this uh, publication, based on UK numbers, it was estimated that uh, 6% of the general populations, they are under medical care for irritable bowel syndrome. And around one third of these patients, they suffer from the so-called diarrhea-predominant um, version of irritable bowel syndrome. And and in the study, it turned out that around one third Of these patients under medical care for irritable bowel syndrome uh, with a a predominance of diarrhea symptoms, they actually suffered from from BAD. And that corresponds to as many as 0.5 to 1% of the general population in the UK suffering from uh, BAD or in numbers around uh, half a million people in the UK. So quite a lot of uh, people. With regard to the second part of your question, the current understanding around what causes BAD, it's the current understanding nowadays that uh, BAD uh, is caused by spillover of bile acids from the small intestines to the uh, colon. And in the colon, bile acids are not supposed to be in the lumen uh, of the gut down there. And that is also where they cause these symptoms of diarrhea, urgency, stomach pain, and so on. So the the idea here is that there simply is too little reabsorption of bile acids through the small intestinal tract or, and perhaps combined with an increased uh, synthesis of bile acids, simply causing that spillover into the colon. Great. So
0: given what we know then about these mechanisms that underlie underlying BAD, um, you've touched obviously briefly on, on the diagnostic aspects. What do we know about the treatment for people who are living with this condition? Uh,
1: that's a really good question because the treatment options for people living with BAD uh, are really uh, limited. The current management of BAD involves advice on low-fat dying, but we all know that it's very tough to adhere to such diet in, in the longer run. Also, treatment with bile acid sequestrants, which sequester bile acids in the gut looming, preventing them from causing the so-called troubles in the colon. And these drugs are, first of all, expensive. And also, many patients, they experience an inadequate effect or intolerable side effects from these drugs. So therefore, new treatment modalities are obviously highly needed.
0: And so, then in your new trial, you and your colleagues were investigating the efficacy of uh, uh, glucagon like peptide 1 receptor agonist liraglutide for, for BAD, which maybe at first glance might seem a bit of a strange choice of agent to some people. Um, what research led you on to uh, looking at this study drug in particular?
1: The research behind uh, this paper actually reaches more than uh, ten years back. So when I was a junior doctor, I kind of grew up in a department of internal medicine comprised of two sections, both a section of endocrinology and a section of, of, of gastroenterology, and you know that really opened my eyes for the both the clinical but also the scientific cross field between these two uh, specialities and. And that was, that's also why in my research career, I've really been focused on understanding the integrity role of the gut in human physiology and also its role in metabolic diseases such as obesity and, and, and type 2 diabetes and how gut hormones can be utilized for the treatment of these uh, conditions. And then when I back in 2009 read a uh, paper in Cell Metabolism dealing with how bile acids can actually stimulate GLP-1 secretion from, from, from the gut, I really became interested in, in, in bile acids as metabolic uh, regulators. So you can, in a way, say that we started more than 10 years ago focusing on how bile acids, they stimulate GLP-1 secretion, but we ended up in this study... Investigating the clinical utility of GLP-1 induced modulation of bile acid synthesis and the intrahepatic circulation of bile acid, so it this study actually turns things uh, upside down, you know, and 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 uh, over the last ten years or so, one of the studies that we. Uh, applied in order to understand how bile acids stimulate GLP one uh, secretion, actually involved patients with the uh, BAD in whom we hypothesized that GLP one secretion would be high due to the excess uh, bile in the gut lumen. But but that was uh, not the case. That's a, that's a study we published uh, earlier this year. But the, that study really opened our eyes for BAD as a debilitating and underdiagnosed condition with no uh, effective therapies and, and and coincidentally with that in our outpatient diabetes clinic we actually initiated treatments uh, sorry we initiated treatment with the liraglutide this GLP1 receptor agonist in patients who had diabetes but coincidentally also had BAD and these patients came back to us and said, so, I mean, you initiated some anti-diabetic therapy, but it's a miracle that it actually t- caused total remission of uh, BAD uh, symptoms. So moving from 10 diarrheas per day, they actually had completely normal bowel movements with only one stool per day uh, and, uh, and no uh, diarrhoea. So that really, you know, that was really the foundation for this study and knowing from both patients and also the literature that no good medical therapies exist for the many people suffering from BAD, I mean, it was a no-brainer to design this uh, randomized control trial. And
0: I mean, that's a perfect jumping off point to now talk about your trial. What were the key design, design criteria and the decisions that you made? Can you just overview that for us?
1: Yeah. First of all, we needed an active comparator, as these patients, they suffer from multiple daily episodes of water stools, they have urgency, fecal incontinence, and so on. So we, we, we couldn't really go with a placebo control trial uh, with an arm with no treatment. So, so we opted in for an active comparator, and uh, we designed it as a randomized controlled trial a parallel group study with two arms, and we chose the, chose the best-in-class bile acid sequestrant restraint called colesevelam uh, as, the, as the active comparator. We used uh, the highest recommended doses for colesevelam, uh, and we also used the highest recommended dose for lyraclitide uh, for, for, for diabetes. And, and the dose for lyraclitide, uh, we had of course tested that in the two cases that we published uh, uh, have published uh, uh, earlier in terms of um, the non-inferiority non-inferi- in- design we thought that it was appropriate as you know no other trials have investigated lyraclitide in 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 BAD um, and we made the power calculations based on the primary endpoint, uh, which was the proportion of patients experiencing a 25% reduction in daily bowel movements, and we chose a non-inferior margin of of 15%. And based on these calculations, we could see that we needed 25 patients in each arm to show non-inferiority at a 50% limit with with an 80% power. Wonderful. And so what were your key findings then? The key finding is that compared to colocevalam, considered standard uh, of care, six weeks treatment with the GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide was not only uh, inferior, but it was also superior in reducing stool frequency in patients with BAD. And uh, it also turned out that both treatments were actually safe and had quite benign safety profile. So no, no bad surprises there. And I also think it's important to mention that we also observed some some added benefits of liraglutide, And there was namely some beneficial effects in terms of it also addressed this dysmetabolic this pre-diabetic state that these patients uh, also are characterized by. So those are effects well known from the diabetes and obesity field where lyraclitide is used at, as both an, a, a, weight lose, a, a weight loss agent, but also as an anti-diabetic agent. And uh, lastly, uh, we also saw in contrast to colcivilam that lyraclitide actually increased the reabsorption of bile acids assessed by the CICAT, the Modality, and we also could see that lyraclitide uh, decreased the bile acid synthesis, considered a, a, a key a pathophysiological trait of uh, BAD. So lyraclitide lir- really, you know, rectified some of these core pathophysiological features of BAD. Sure. So uh, I mean, given these kind of quite pleotropic effects, these
0: quite you know diverse beneficial effects for patients. Um, how do you see these findings being taken forward, son?
1: Yeah, first of all, I hope really that people suffering from BAD will benefit from uh, our findings. Um, you can say that despite the relatively small number of patients included in our study, it, it actually represents one of the largest randomized control trials investigating the effect of medical therapy in, in BAD. So I really think our results should inform both patients and healthcare professionals that liraclitide should be considered a first-line treatment uh, in BAD. And uh, also, I think our trial really opens up for a number of new studies. Uh, I think it would be great to see trials, first of all, confirming our results, also trials establishing uh, the long-term effectiveness of lyraclitide. Our study was only a six-week study. It would be great to see trials with longer durations. I also think it would be great to see studies on the effect of lyraclitide, perhaps combined with colocevalam in in people suffering from really severe BAD with two-digit bowel movements per day and very severe uh, symptoms. And then uh, lastly, I think, and that is also something that we are uh, contemplating on ourselves, you know, designing studies uh, dedicated to dissecting the mode of action of our lyraclotype in, in these patients. That, that, that's also very important, I think.
0: Brilliant. Well, Professor Krupp, thank you very much once again for joining us and, and sharing your thoughts on the, on the study and clearly a very underappreciated area in the past. And hopefully this is the beginning
1: of of some more advances there. Thank you very much. Bye, Kalisha.
0: So you can now read the article on uh, the liver glutide versus lamb trial. Uh, That's up online now at thelancet.com. Thank you very much, Professor Knope, once again. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast, In Conversation With. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.